is good to have all of you here today on such an incredibly beautiful day here in Bellingham. Those of you in Skagit, so good to have you joining us. And it was a blast being with you last Wednesday night as we had that great celebration. Those of you in Boca Raton at the Trinity Church of God, thanks for being with us. And if you're joining us online, thanks for doing uh, the live stream with us uh, today. Real quick update. Um, many of you have been praying for me and asked how I'm doing. Uh, a little bit of a misdiagnosis last week. The truth is I have a herniated disc. The good news is that I feel much better today than I did last week, so we're going in the right direction. But I'm going to continue to stay in this chair today, if that's okay with you, uh, at least for this week, uh, that would help me out. I'd appreciate that. So that's just a little update there. I'd ask you to continue to pray. I'd love uh, for 100% healing on, on all this. Hey, it is Mother's Day weekend, and I want to say to all the moms here, Happy Mother's Day. Thank you so much for your love, your grace, your wisdom, your patience, your instruction, your sacrifice. Moms, you are absolutely amazing, and we uh, celebrate you today. So grateful that you're here. Some of you are here with your family. Some of you are not here with your family. My mom's not here, but I've been texting her today. So if you need a Mother's Day hug after church, just come up. I'll give it to you because I don't have my mom here. But, you know, I also know that, that this is a tough day for some of you. Uh, maybe it's because of the mom you had or didn't have, or maybe it's the deep pain that only a mom can know. Or maybe it's a loss or the pain that you carry for a child or maybe it's the fact that motherhood just hasn't worked out uh, according to your plans or may never work out. And for those of you who are in that uh, category, I want to thank you uh, and tell you how, how much I appreciate you being here and the courage to come here on a day that is very difficult. But uh, whether you're a mom or not, you know, I think about my life personally, in my family, in my extended family, and just the role of women and how it has shaped who I am, formed who I am. I think about our staff, our ministries, the leadership, our elder board, uh, and how blessed we are uh, because of the women, that, that you women are the beautifully uh, daughter of the Most High God created in His image, and you are our sisters in Christ, and we could not thank you or love you enough and just so appreciate you and your part of God's work on this earth. So moms, thank you uh, very much uh, for being amazing. Now, I will say this. Today, I'm not preaching a Mother's Day sermon. We're going to finish with snakes, gardens, and crosses and didn't think that that would be best for Mother's Day. But on second re reflection, I thought maybe this would be okay. Because as a mom, I mean, you have to be as, as crafty and cunning and wise as a snake while you nurture the garden of your family for them to flourish and be fruitful in their life and carry the cross of the burden and the sacrifice of being moms. So there's your mom's moment right there as snakes, gardens, and crosses, you're all set. So, but uh, yeah, well, thank you very much. But this isn't about moms. Today we're going to be talking about Jesus again, which is a good thing to talk about in church. Jesus, who is our creator, Jesus, who is our sustainer, and Jesus, who is our redeemer. And I love that title for Jesus as a redeemer, that Jesus is, is restoring and reclaiming that which is lost. You know, I mean, from the opening pages of Scripture, in the early parts, God creates this world that is good. He says everything he creates, he says it is good. It is beautiful. It is perfect. It is literally paradise. Everything is as he planned, as he ordained, as he created it. And then within just a couple of short chapters, something changes and sin enters into this world. And that which was just perfect, that which was so beautiful, is now stained. It's marred. It's flawed. It's broken. It's ruined. And the rest of Scripture is this story of God's redemptive work to, to restore that which has been broken, to restore that which has been stained. And I find it interesting that that brokenness happens in the first couple of chapters of Genesis. And you go clear to the end of the Bible, clear to the end of the book of Revelation. In the second to last 
chapter in the entire Bible, you read these words where Jesus said, he says, he who is seated on the throne, Jesus said, I am making everything new, that I am restoring, that I am recreating, I am making things new. And Jesus did this on the cross. Jesus is doing this in our lives, and Jesus will do this in all of the world, in all of creation, when he sets all things right. And it's that that I want to talk about today, this redemptive plan that we find in Jesus. Now, before we get into that, I want to just mention that about a year ago, at one of our refuge services, um, I, I shared some thoughts, and at that time, I just said, you know, this are, these are incomplete thoughts or musings. I'm still putting this together. It's not a done deal. In fact, I think at the end of it, I kind of pulled the Forrest Gump and just said, that's all I got to say about that. Didn't even have a conclusion, but my plan was to continue to work on that and come back around and present it as a sermon, and that's what today's about. I'm still not sure that I'm complete in my thoughts. I don't know that I'm done in my thinking about this, but I do want to uh, address this again, and we're going to use as a launching pad a a couple of verses out of 1 Corinthians 13. So if you have your Bible or phone or tablet, you want to follow along, we're going to get there in a minute. We're going to be uh, looking at a few verses in 1 Corinthians 15, from uh, which we will launch off into the rest uh, of this uh, sermon, uh, if you call it a sermon. It may not be a sermon. I'm not entirely sure what you would call it. In 1859, Charles Dickens wrote a book called A Tale of Two Cities. And while I don't have the whole thing word for word, he starts that whole book with a poem when he says, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was an age of wisdom, it was an age of foolishness. It was a season of light, it was a season of darkness, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. Kind of this paralleled opposites, comparing and contrasting, almost kind of in, like what, what Solomon did in Ecclesiastes, or some of you who have never read Ecclesiastes, maybe you're old enough to remember the bird song, you know, turn, 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 that there's all these things, there's a time to be born, there's a time to die, there's a time to make peace, there's time to go to war, there's time to mend, time to tear, all that, time to embrace, time to stop, all, you know, whatever. So it's kind of this back and forth, this, this comparison, this contrast. Now, as long as we're talking about literary things, I'll give you a free language arts lessons today. So this one's bonus, this one's free, that in, in the American language, we talk about comparing and contrasting, and sometimes this gets confused and mixed up. This will allow you to sound more educated than you actually are if you get this down. When it comes to comparison, generally speaking, you compare to, and that is where you focus on similarities. So you compare something to something else, and you focus on similarities. You contrast with, and that's where you kind of focus on the differences, Compare to what's similar, contrast with what's different, generally speaking. So today we're going to do that. We're going to do kind of this ping pong back and forth, kind of this uh, uh, parallels of opposites, comparing to, contrasting with, looking at different things. And I've got a whole list here. Like we're going to look at two atoms, two gardens, two brides, two choices, two directions, and two outcomes. And so we're going to be kind of looking at this back, back and forth. Now, with that contrast of, of, of what, you know, is and the differences, we even have two screens. Old school, new school. Contrast. There's differences here. Similarity. They both have words. That's, that's comparison. Got are, we, are we clear on all that? Okay. So that's what we're going to do. And I will say this. Some of what we're talking about today is maybe kind of swimming a little bit more on the deeper end of the theological pool than maybe sometimes we've done in the past. So I need you to be attentive, and I need you to be with me, because I'm going to ask you some questions. None of them are trick questions. Whatever the answer comes to your mind is probably the right one, so I'm going to have to ask you to help with that. And as I said, I'm not sure that this is a sermon. 
It might be more of a teaching. I don't know how you differentiate between the two, kind of a theological teaching. My prayer and my hope is this, that at the end of it, you'll have some clarity on a truth from God's word, but more importantly, that you'll fall more in love with Jesus Christ and want to worship him even greater. So are you ready for this? All right, let's jump into it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul's been writing to the church in Corinth, and he's talking about the resurrection. Verse 45, he says, So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. So he's quoting this. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man from, the heaven, from heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so shall we bear the likeness of the man from heaven. Is that clear? All right. So, amen, we're dismissed. Go and be blessed. I think for some of us, we read that. We hear that and we're like, ah, I got nothing. Let's go back to Jesus loves me. Okay, we will. But let's kind of dig into this and see what it's saying. Back to the very first verse that we read. So it is written... The first man, Adam, became a living being, he's quoting here, and the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. So he's talking about two different Adams here. And what we have is the first Adam, and then he refers to the last Adam. Now, with the first Adam, he says there's some things about this first Adam, that he's a natural man, he's of the earth, and he's created. Now, we see this in Genesis where it says, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, from earth, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. That's what Paul is quoting. He's quoting Genesis chapter 2. So this is what happens with this first Adam, that God creates him from the earth. He's a natural man who's created and breathes the, the uh, breath of life into him. The last Adam, and just to make sure that we're really clear on this, because you know I'm saying, okay, I'm not sure I never heard the story about the other Adam. The last Adam, using that title, is really cryptic. What he's talking about here is Jesus. So whenever, uh, today, when we're talking about the last Adam, it's synonymous with Jesus. Here's the contrast. The, the first Adam was a natural man of the earth and created. The last Adam is not natural man. He's a spiritual man. He's not from the earth. He's from heaven, and he's not created. He's the creator. What's even more interesting is that the last Adam existed before the first Adam, and the first Adam was created by the last Adam. Say, so, are you getting the clarity on all this stuff? So Jesus, okay, good, all right, I'm glad we're, we're kind of with it here. Oh, and by the way, I've been saying this all weekend. If there's something that you're like, yes, for today, just say, yes, amen, hallelujah. Can I get a witness? Something. I so, okay, so let's go. So this last Adam, this last Adam, is different than the first Adam. In fact, when John uh, talks about Jesus and his birth in John chapter 1, it says this, through him, through the last Adam, through Jesus, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. Jesus is the eternal God, the creator of all things, the giver of all life. When Paul writes uh, to the, uh, in, the, in the letter to, uh, of Colossians, he talks about the supremacy of Christ, and this is what he says. He, Jesus, the last Adam, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now let's stop here for a minute. Because there are some, and I'm not being casting stones, I'm just giving you an information. There are some, for instance, like Jehovah's Witnesses, who would not believe that Jesus is the eternal creator God. 
They believe that Jesus had been created, and they will use this verse as one of the ways to say, see, Jesus was created. This word firstborn, prototokos is the Greek word, can mean order of birth, like he was the first one. But it can also mean, and in the New Testament, most often also means the preeminence, the authority, the supremacy. So when you read it that way, that Jesus has authority, has the preeminence, he has the, the, the um, superiority over all creation. For by him, all things were created. Everything was created by Jesus. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether the thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He's before all things. In him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, and here we go again, the firstborn from among the dead. Now, we've got to stop here. Because if we're talking about chronological order, if you're familiar with Scripture, Jesus is not the first one that came back from the dead. If you remember, Elijah raised someone from the dead. Elisha raised someone from the dead. Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He raised the widow of Nain, her son, from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. So there's five or six people in Scripture that have been raised from the dead before Jesus was. So it's not chronological order. Here's what sets Jesus apart, and this is why it's supremacy. This is why it's the authority over, it's the, the preeminence is what sets Jesus apart from every other person in Scripture that was raised from the dead is this. Question. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, ultimately what happened to him? He died. That's right. All of them that were raised from the dead ultimately eventually died. Jesus didn't. Jesus was raised from the dead, and he didn't die again. In fact, there's, if you want to write this down in your notes, it's such a cool verse in Revelation chapter 1, 18, where Jesus said, I am the living one. I was dead, but behold, I am alive forever and ever. He never dies again. That gives him the supremacy over the grave, over death. He is the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything, he might have the supremacy. There we go. I like it. Woo! Yeah. Hallelujah. All right. So now we've got our last Jesus and our first Jesus. Now, both of these uh, are uh, Adam. Both of these Adams have uh, an, an incident and an event that happens in a garden. In fact, the first Adam, his whole story starts in a garden. Little question. What garden might that be? Eden. Right. Some of you said Linden. No, Eden. <laughs> Eden, the other paradise. He starts his life in a garden, the Garden of Eden. Now the last Adam, he ends his life, or at least the last chapter, in a garden as well. Garden? Gethsemane. All right. And it's an interesting thing of how they interact with God in these gardens. The first Adam, you see this picture of this beautiful, perfectly harmonious union with the Heavenly Father as he walks with God through the garden in the cool of the day. It's just like, like two friends, like, like this wonderful union of, of their lives together, walking with God in the cool of the day. The last Adam is struggling, is wrestling in the darkest night in the garden. And there's a defining issue that both Adams have to make a decision about that comes to them in the garden. And in both of them, it's similar. There's a comparison here that there's a similarity, but there's a contrast, there's a difference. In both of them, they wrestle with this, this defining issue when the father says, obey me about the tree. Obey me about the tree. They both have this thing 
and with this obey me about the tree, it comes down to do I, will I trust my heavenly father? This is a test of if I trust him, even if it doesn't make sense to me, even if I don't necessarily want to do it, even if I don't totally get it. For the first Adam, the tree is referred to, if you're familiar with uh, early chapters of Genesis, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And some of you are, are familiar with that story. And with that, God takes Adam into this garden and he says, Adam, look how I've provided for you. All of these trees are beautiful. They're wonderful to eat. You can have as much as you want from all of the trees, save one. The, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do not eat from that tree. God gives him complete latitude on everything else. He says, there's one thing. I need you to trust me on this. I need you to obey me on this. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he says, disobedience on this one. You disobey me, disobey and you will die. That's going to be the consequence of this tree if you eat of it. So that's, that's the, the issue he has to deal with. The other Adam in the other garden deals with another tree. This is a different tree. This tree we often refer to as the cross. What's interesting is in the book of Acts three times, in 1 Peter once, the cross is referred to as a tree. And on this one, God is, is going to say, will you trust me on this? And with this tree, what he says to Jesus is, obey me and you will die. Obey me and you will die. We looked at this last week in, in Philippians 2.8 where it says he was obedient to death, even death on a cross. In both of these situations, there's this test. Will I trust my heavenly father? Will I be obedient? Will I do what he says? And both of them have to come to this question while Jesus articulates it, uh, the, the last Adam does. The first Adam does not, but this is really uh, paramount in the whole decision. Is it gonna be my will or thy will? That really is what it comes down to. Am I gonna go with what I wanna do, what, what makes more sense to me, what I think is right, or am I gonna just trust you as my heavenly father? Now, push pause on that, we'll come back to that decision. Both Adams have a bride. The first Adam, not a trick question, has a bride, her name is? Good, Eve. All right, you remember Eve. And, uh, and the last Adam, uh, Jesus, the, the bride of Christ is? The church, that's us. You guys are fantastic. This is wonderful. In, in the, the first Adam, his bride is Eve. You remember, she was made from a rib, from his side, not from his legs or arms, not going dis to disable him. It's going to come from the side. They're going to walk side by side. And the fact that he came from one of her ribs, it made it easier for her to count his ribs and see if he'd ever been cheating on her. Anyway, she was made, and she's in the garden with him. Now, something happens because there's this decision about this tree that it is not to be eaten from. Yet we find this in Genesis. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She took some and ate it. She has now disobeyed God. She has now sinned. She has now rebelled. And now, you just wonder, What's happening? Because this verse goes on to say, and she gave some to Adam and he ate. What we don't know is what span of time happened from the end of that sentence to the beginning of the next one. She eats this fruit. I wonder if Adam goes, give me a second, I want to see what happens to you. Because I've heard you're going to die. Just going to wait for a second. I got some more ribs. Hold on. 
I wonder if he just waits, just pauses, you know, you're on your own, we're gonna see if you make it through this, all that, I, I don't know. But she's the one, and she has crossed over from obedience to disobedience, from, from union with God to rebellion to God, sin, and now she is on a crash course to death according to God's word. Interesting thing, the last Adam has a bride the church. In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was referred to uh, this relationship with God, this covenant, almost like a marriage. In the New Testament, it's the church that's referred to in this marriage-type relationship, this commitment, this covenant, this faithfulness and fidelity. And as we saw last week, we all, a part of that church, have all been sin-bitten with the venom of sin coursing through our veins, sending us on a crash course to death, every single one of us. So we're in the same boat. Now, with this going on, you have these two brides, these two Adams, these two brides. The brides have sinned. They're on their way towards death. And there's a decision that has to be made. There's a choice that has to be made on this. Now, watch this with, with the choice. Adam, up to this point, has never, ever had any kind of break in his relationship with his heavenly father. Everything has been perfect. There's no sin there's been this, this constant union. Uh, they, are, they are walking in oneness and love and unity. It's all wonderful. He has to decide, will I continue to walk in obedience with my heavenly father, with my God, and forsake the wife that I love because she has rebelled, she has, she has disobeyed, and she has sinned? Or will I leave this father who's been so good to me, who breathed life into me from the beginning, disobey him, and go and be with my wife? And what's interesting is that for Adam, he makes a choice, and his choice is disobedience. And in so doing, he joins in with Eve in her sin, and he leaves the Father. The same choice is given to the last Adam. He has known nothing but all of eternity, oneness with the Father, perfect unity. Everything is fantastic. As he's in the garden, as he's trying to decide, he has to decide, will I leave my oneness with the Father? Will I leave this unity that we've experienced? Will I leave this love and forsake this God, being obedient to him, and go to be with this bride whom I love, who is on a crash course to death? The price that that would, that would cost him. And what you find with Jesus is that there is obedience and he identifies with his bride. In Philippians 2, verse 6, it says, uh, it says that in being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the nature of the servant, being made in human likeness. He forsakes all of the Godhead, all the glory of heaven, all the oneness that he's experienced with the Father. He says, I will leave all that and I will identify with my sinful wife. The first Adam joins in and he tastes the sweet taste of the forbidden fruit, but it leaves a bitter aftertaste of separation from the Father and death. The last Adam tastes the bitter taste of the bitter cup, but it leaves this unbelievable otherworldly aftertaste of reconciliation with the Father and salvation. The first Adam makes his decision, and the only thing that can be said is, it's over. It's over. Everything that God planned, it's over. It's ruined. It's broken. It's over. The last Adam makes his decision, and he whispers, it is finished. So you have Adams, 
And they're in this garden, and there's this issue that they've got to decide on. There's this bride that they love, and the first Adam disobeys, and he joins in, and, and the result of that is that there is death, and there is separation. There's a broken relationship. The last Adam has his own decision, and he decides in obedience to identify with, and because of that decision, there's reconciliation. The book of Romans chapter 5 says this, For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men, so also the result of one act of righteousness was justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, many will be made righteous. Isn't that amazing? As beautiful as this gift of God that he just poured out his goodness to us. And, and, it, and what you see is in this decision, this decision determines a direction. All right, are you still with me? Are we still good? Okay, now we're going to get really crazy because we're going to be going simul screens here. Okay, there's going to be two things happen at one time. We've been working on this for years to, to synchronize this deal. The decision determined the direction. So for the first Adam, he makes this decision of disobedience. And that determined a direction. The first Adam, here we go, is sent out to the east. Look at that, two screens at once. He's sent out to the east, out of the garden. Now in, um, oh, 1950-something, uh, John Steinbeck wrote a book called East of Eden. Maybe you've heard of it, there was also a movie. East of Eden has a great significance to our story here because Adam is sent out by a holy God to the east. And very often in scripture, going to the east has more than just a directional implication, that there's a spiritual significance as well. That going to the east often, not always, but often refers to going further away from God. So he goes out of the garden where God's presence is, where the tree of life is, out of God's presence to the east. Here's something interesting. The next chapter, Genesis chapter 4, when Cain kills Abel, and he has this meeting with God, and God says, you know, I'm going to put this mark on you, and no one will kill you. It says that Cain left the presence of God after this horrific sin, this broken world. He murders his brother. He leaves the presence of God, and he goes to the east to a town called Nod. A couple chapters later, chapter 11 of Genesis, God's people are, are all here as creation, and they are filled with pride, and they don't need God, and so they're going to build this tower. It's going to be the Tower of Babel, and they decide that they will go farther eastward to this plain where they will build this tower, continuing farther from God, farther from God, farther from God. Later, when God decides that he is going to discipline his people for the purpose of bringing them back to himself, he sends them into exile into Babylon, which is in the east. You see where that's going? That every time there's this sin, every time there's this decision to, to rebel, to walk away, to, to uh, disobey, we go farther and farther to the east. This Adam, when he makes his decision, he is led out to the west. This Adam is sent out by, by a, a loving God. This Adam is led out by sinful man. 
and he's led to the west. And I hope that I'm not going too far stretching on this one. But he's been in the Garden of Gethsemane. Some of us were just there two months ago. In the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives. And they led him out of the garden. And they took him west. West down through the Kidron Valley, off of the Mount of Olives, up onto the other side. To the west is where Jerusalem was, the holy city of God. To the west is where Jerusalem was, which contained the temple. And in the temple was the Holy of Holies. And in the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. They take him to the west. It's going back towards God's city, towards God's temple, towards God's dwelling place, towards God's mercy. And they take him to the west. And as I was thinking about this yesterday, this came to me and I'm like, oh, this is amazing. Suddenly, I read Psalm 103 where it says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Suddenly that takes on a whole new significance because my GPS always takes me to the east. I'm always straying. I'm always wandering. I'm always rebelling. And God says, I don't care how far east you go. You just turn around and I will bring you to the west. There we go. I know. I saw I'm like, oh God, you were so cool. That is the best. All right. So, so back to, back to this story, back, back, especially this first Adam. He's, he's led out to the east. All right, in Genesis it says this. After he drove the man, after God drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. So he sends him out to the east, and then he puts this angelic creature or creatures there, and there's this flaming sword that's flashing back and forth, and, and that sword is the sword of the justice of God. And what it means is the only way to get back into the presence of God, the only way to get back to the source of life is that someone has to go through the flashing sword of God's judgment. You do not know how much self-control I am just demonstrating now by not going down Two squirrel trails that are going around in my head like, oh, we need to talk about the sacrificial system in Leviticus. This makes perfect sense. Or, oh, the cutting of the covenant with Abraham and circumcision. Now it gets it. The sword. But I'm not going to talk about any of that. What I'm saying is this, that in order for us to get back into God's presence, back into the right standing with God, back into life away from this death sentence that we have, someone or something has to pass through the sword of God's divine justice. Now, in Isaiah 53, this prophecy that was written about Jesus 700 years before he comes, it says this, he was pierced for our transgressions. You say, wait, 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 isn't that what the Roman soldier did when he was on the cross? Yes, 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 but could it not also be that he was pierced by the divine sword of justice from our God? He was pierced. He's the one that went through it. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds, we are healed. What that means is that Jesus gets what we deserve and we get what Jesus deserves. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's getting the punishment that I deserve for my wandering to the east, for my rebellion, for my sin, for my disobedience. All the shame, all the guilt, all the punishment that I deserve is being put on Jesus. He's going through the flashing sword of God's justice so that I don't have to. And in exchange, he gives me what I could never deserve. He gives me the right standing with God that he had for all of eternity. He gives me a, a right relationship back from this whole thing that I've done. And I don't deserve any of it. But it's only because of God's grace and his goodness that I get to have that. In, in 2 Corinthians it says this. 
God made him, Jesus, the last Adam, who had no sin to be sin for us. Push pause there. The first Adam, in disobedience, joins in with the sin and then brings on sin. The last Adam, in obedience, identifies with, doesn't join in my sin, becomes my sin. He becomes my sin. He becomes your sin so that all of God's wrath as a just, holy God can be poured out against that sin on the Son. He who had no sin becomes sin for us so that in him, we don't deserve this. We might become the righteousness of God. This is this imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus, my sin. They're swapped. He gets what I deserve. I get what he deserves. Let me ask you, who of us could ever deserve the righteousness of God? Who of you could ever be good enough to have the righteousness of God? None of us could. If you think you could, there's another sermon we need to have, or at least a little sit-down talk. Because it doesn't matter how good you are, no one withstanding, Billy Graham, Mother Teresa, no one is good enough to have the righteousness of God except Jesus alone. And Jesus said, I will give you my righteousness. For, yeah, yeah, there we go. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, creator of the universe yet for your sakes he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich that you'd be joint heirs with Christ you'd be sons and daughters of the most high God the king of kings you would sit at the table with the Lord Almighty all the riches of God given to us because of what Christ has done for us in in um, in 1667 uh, John Milton wrote a, a, a poem. It's actually an epic poem. And I don't say that lightly. It's not epic like everyone uses epic today for everything. Hey, how's that snow cone? Epic. <laughs> snow cones can't be epic, by the way. Everything's epic, so nothing's epic. John Milton's poem was an epic poem. When it was published in 1667, uh, it was published in 10 books, 10,000 lines, an crazy, incredible epic poem. The name of this poem was paradise lost. Paradise lost. And it's not just a poem from 1667. It's the reality of our lives. What the first Adam did with that decision in the garden and the sinfulness of his wife and disobedience to join in, being sent to the east, and paradise is lost. John Milton, four years later, wrote a sequel in 1671. He wrote a sequel to this epic poem called Paradise Regained. And while that's nice on a literary level, this has significant eternal impact for every single one of us. Because apart from the last Adam, we are all stuck here in the East with the flashing sword of God's justice. Paradise is lost. It's hopeless. But because of the last Adam and the choice that he makes, and the sacrifice that he does, paradise is regained. You see, you, you see all this, and there's the comparison, and there's the contrast, but it's beyond all that. It's beyond just a comparison and a contrast. What Jesus does is that Jesus, ready for this? Two screens. Ready, Ray? Jesus delivers a reversal. That's when he says, I'm making all things new. That which is lost will be found. That which is broken will be healed and mended. That which was marred and stained will be made white as snow. 
and making all things new again. I mean, look how this is summarized in Corinthians. It says this, For as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. And this is all good. And I, and I hope that you have clarity in some theological stuff that maybe you didn't before or just a reinforcement. But it's got to go beyond just theology for you. This really is about taking this and applying it personally. Because if it's just about knowing more theology, that's just going to give you a, a puffed up head of pride of look at all the stuff I know. Have you applied this to the reality of your life? This is when it becomes personal. Therefore, if anyone's in, in the, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. So this isn't something we did. It's not because we're good enough. It's not because we're worthy enough. It's because our God in his love and his grace said, I've got a plan that's going to reverse what has happened in your life. We've been reconciled to him through Christ, and we've been given this ministry of reconciliation. It says this is too good of news to keep to yourself. That's why the gospel is called good news. This is amazing that, it was, that God was reconciling not just the church, the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. How many times have we taken the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he has done for us, and we've made it the, yeah, it's not bad news. No, 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 this is good news. Or we've made it good news with a whole bunch of other stuff that makes it burdensome and, 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 and laborious and, and difficult and, and legalistic. No, no, no. Strip it all away and get back to the truth. Our world is broken and messed up, and God says, I have sent the remedy through the last Adam, Jesus Christ. He is recreating and making all things new. And we've been given this ministry of reconciliation to bring this healing, to bring this hope to a world that is still broken and still in the East and lost. You know, I grew up going to a small church. We sang hymns, and, and uh, there's a hymn that we sang that I would guess 90, probably 98% of you have never even heard of. It was written by a man named Daniel Otis Teasley, written in 1898. And the reason I think most of you have never heard of it is because he was a, a, a Church of God man from Anderson, Indiana, and most of his hymn never made it into the, the major hymnals that, that you, many of you grew up with. But this song had the lyrics that went like this. Salvation's free, glad joy to all of Adam's fallen race. We'll tell the news both far and near of saving, keeping grace. There's joy, glad joy now flowing from above. There's joy, glad joy in the fullness of his love. That we've got this gift from God. And the only proper response is for us to worship our God, to fall humbly on our knees, surrender, submitting, lifting up his name and exalting him and glorifying him, fixing our eyes on the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. What's that joy? It's us. It's our life that we can be brought from the east back into the family of God. That he was obedient to death on a cross and therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, this last Adam, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father.
That's the gospel. That's the good news, people. And today, we're going to close like we did last week. And we're going to celebrate this. We're going to remember what Christ has done for us. We're going to take communion. I'm going to invite our ushers to come forward. And again, I'll say this. If you're a follower after Christ, if this is the reality of your life, you're welcome to participate in this. If not, man, just let it go by. Don't make a big deal of it. But think about what God has done for you. And over these next few minutes, the band is going to play. They're going to lead us in a song. You take the communion whenever you're ready. You don't have to wait for everybody to be served. But you take it. And when you take it today, may it come with a heart that is filled with joy of the abundant love of our Heavenly Father, the sacrifice of the last Adam. And you take this celebrating who God is. Then we'll sing, and I'll close this in prayer.